And welcome to another episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me today, as always, are Toby and Vaughn. Hi, guys. Hi, Simon. Hey, Simon. Today, we're doing a special bonus episode in honour of launching our new website, impressionsofamerica.com. This website will host not only our podcast episodes, but also written content that we'll be uploading on a fairly regular basis, and uh, maybe some videos too. We promise it won't feature too uh, too heavily on Mitt Romney, but you know he will pop up from from time to time. We're recording this on Friday, July twenty fourth, and by the time you hear this, the the website will be live. So please go check out impressionsofamerica dot com, or check out our Twitter account at USA Impressions for all the latest content. And uh, also, if you do enjoy the show, uh, please leave a nice comment on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts, and the nicest comment or the best comment. We'll win a date with Toby. That's God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's news to Toby, but I'm sure he'll be delighted. Uh, okay, so to, to It'll celebrate... It'll probably be something to do with Oscar Wilde, I think. Oh, well, I mean, what what more what more could you want? A three-way with Toby and Oscar Wilde. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's beautiful. Uh, so to celebrate the launch of the website and possibly a date with Toby... Uh, and you know he he was I think he's buried in Paris right so yeah you you, you probably will I oh. mean that's an incidental but yeah you, you will will it will have will have to go there for for it. see it's these nuggets of information that you can enjoy on your date with Toby I think this this is <laughs> I, I I might leave a comment just so that I can win um so <laughs> <laughs> so to celebrate the the launch of the website we're we're diving back into Vaughn's uh, book corner and. Uh, we're going to be discussing the second half of The President is Missing, written by Bill Clinton, which you might remember from a previous episode, we, we discussed the first half of that. And then later on in the episode, we're going to be discussing Too Much and Never Enough, written by Mary L. Trump, niece of Donald Trump. So you might have uh, heard about that book in uh, in recent times. That has certainly made a stir. Uh, Vaughn, I know you're excited to talk about both books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, I think we may... Uh, Vaughn's got wine in hand, so I think this may be a good episode, guys. Uh, Vaughn, can can you start just by reintroducing uh, The President is Missing to our audience? Yes. So, um, like Simon said, it was written by Bill Clinton and James Patterson. Um, I believe it came out in 2018, and it's a political thriller um, suspense book about the president presumably going missing. Um, it In the first hundred or so pages that we covered in the last episode, um, it was a lot of setup <clears throat> for what was happening in Washington at the time and this, this very uh, famous war criminal all over the world, uh, Suleiman Sindorak, and the president, Jonathan Duncan, was getting ready to meet with um, someone who knew about this imminent threat that he believed Sindoric was behind. Um, He was also facing impeachment charges and a trial the following week that we don't actually see in the book. Um, But there's a lot of kind of pressure around that to get ready for it. Um, And the media was a very central 
kind of figure in the first half of the book. There was a lot of kind of condemnation about how we use social media um, against the government and well, for and against it. But um, the president had had very strong feelings against the kind of constant nature of social media and the news media exploiting uh, that kind of interest in the news. Mm. So when we left off with it, um, the president was not yet missing. And I had projected that I thought he was about to go missing from the context of what I was reading, but I was wrong. Right. Uh, the president does not actually go missing in any way that you'd expect. The reader stays with the president almost the entire time, only switching perspectives from the first person views of the president to this like third omniscient narrator um, that's following an assassin who's gradually getting closer to the plot with every kind of short chapter that she's allotted to raise the suspense. Mm -hmm. But the president is still your central figure. So uh, he does leave the White House, and it is a, a very covert kind of operation. He eludes his Secret Service and um, really goes off the grid. And he's gone from the public eye for roughly 36 hours. But the entire time that he is gone, he's within a county's distance of D.C. He's just off camera, offline, and off the record. So as the plot unfolds, the person the president was leaving the White House to covertly meet with turns out to be one of the terrorists who created the larger, more imminent threat that only the president and his tight-knit group of eight advisors know about. And the terrorist also reveals that he knows the code word of the threat, which means that one of the secure eight um, of the highest ranking officials in Washington is working with the terrorists in some capacity. And the president is now kind of saddled with this extra concern that one of his advisors has committed treason. So from this point on, for the next like 350 or so pages of the book, there is just nonstop suspense. And it's action packed and it's emotional and it's tense. And I could not put it down. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I finished it within a day or two, um, just of like incessant page turning. Because I really hate that I loved it so much. <laughs> like, it bothers me that I am this invested in a Bill Clinton novel. <laughs> um, that, that old slick Willie Charmy. <laughs> it's just, like, there are definitely parts where you're like, yes, James Patterson wrote this. It's beautiful suspense and thrills, and it's, like, deep plot and everything. And th then there are parts where Clinton is, like, referring to women's breasts as the girls. And like, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, so, I mean, so sorry. Like a dope, you know. Like he's a like, wasn't he like a Rhodes Scholar? He's not. Yeah, <laughs> it's like Bumpkin who managed to be like uh, the governor of Arkansas somehow. Yeah, very much some sort of uh, yeah country bumpkin president by the sense of it. Um, but just just for context, do you read many kind of political thrillers or any kind of fiction along this kind of lines, like? in your own time kind of outside of this or is this kind of new for you um this was kind of new for me i uh yeah no this was fairly new i think the closest i get to it in like normal leisure reading is like post-apocalyptic political things so like brave new world kind of area yeah. 
or the 2016 election. So on you go, on, on with the story. Right, okay, so it's revealed that the imminent threat is a cyber attack. It's a virus with the capability to render all U.S. cyber infrastructure useless. And it wipes clean every piece of technology in the U.S. From the highest tech, like satellites and military things, mm -hmm. to, to like the smart toaster in your kitchen. So everything <laughs> would be in, infected with this virus. Um, and the threat is that it would wipe clean every financial record and every phone log and every university system, mm -hmm. military records, um, social security records, just everything. So as the president considers like the scale of this attack with each update uh, on what his experts are learning about it, it begins to mount the anticipation for just how easily the U.S. could be brought to its knees. And like you two know that I am the last person who would know anything about software or technology. <laughs> um, but Patterson and Clinton really. No, that's not true. I'm the last person. I, I, I'm the last person who would do right. that. You two can fight it out then. But you're the pen penultimate person. <laughs> I've definitely broken many things by just being in the room with them. Like <laughs> you, you, you can be Toby's. Uh... Um, what vice president? I'm trying to think who would be the equivalent. Uh, you can be what the Dick Cheney of uh, of scaling technology. Oh god! <laughs> <laughs> Woof. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, they capture this really intense and kind of like visceral response that just had me like incensed. Um, and I was trying to keep up with my own ideas about who betrayed the president and whether the terrorist who alerted the president to the virus was actually helping or trying to sabotage any pre preventative efforts and whether the assassin was uh, getting close enough to like fulfill her mission, whatever it might be, because that's not disclosed. It, like, it was just so good. And for a brief moment, I even doubted that there would be a happy ending, that mm. they might not stop the virus. Which is kind of foolish for, like, mm -hmm. an ex-president's debut political thriller novel. Like, <laughs> like, it's pretty obvious when you pick it up, like, this is going to have a happy ending. But they... they... Yeah, it's not like it's J Jimmy Carter's novel or anything. Like <laughs> <laughs> it just... Yeah. But, okay, so, anyway, like, spoiler alert, by the end, everything gets resolved. Um, but in such, like, an expertly done way, like, every loose end is tied... There's a joyous reunion of father and daughter. We have plot twists and arrests and their exiles and even a rehoming of a baby from a subplot. Like, everything mm. is covered. Um, and the president gives a speech at the end of the book condemning some behaviors and practices in modern America while also extolling the virtues of Americana, uh, like liberties and rights that we allegedly hold dear. Um, and oh, like 1950s diners and stuff. Yeah, yeah, the the Captain America. <laughs> That's it, the MCU. Um, yeah. So I'll I'll put a reading of that passage on the website um, yeah. for viewing pleasure. Should you wish to explore Bill Clinton's like twenty years later farewell address through his <laughs> fictional president? That um, doesn't make you run to the website. I don't know what will. Right. I promise I'll have wine in hand for that. <laughs> Um, but this book was a ride, okay? And, like, I, I highly recommend it, and I am shocked that I do. Um, but very good. 
So there are two things that I crucially like want to touch on crucially um, after having read the full book. So the first is the idea that the president didn't actually go missing. The president left public eye for a 36 hour period and the country descended into speculations about his chronic health condition, <clears throat> which um, also added so much more suspense to the suspense because he was drifting in and out of consciousness at various points. Like, so well done, so well done. Um, but the media sensationalized the idea that no one could get into contact with him. And, and they were dissecting the tone with which the vice president said the president is very busy in a hedging response to questions about his whereabouts. And yeah. that's just like, that's kind of absurd, right? Like, like think about it for a, a sec. Like a man is gone for 36 hours and the entire country devolved into conspiracy theories and chaos. And I think it says a lot about the use of social media that the book already raised before and raises again in the final chapter um, that'll go up on the site. But like never before have we ever been so demanding on the visual or audio presence of a president. Yeah. And that's like, what's worse is that this seemed entirely commonplace for me, that if the president isn't on any social media news or other media outlet for 24 hours, it's a source of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And like, before we get to the second part, like, do you guys wanna weigh in on that? I think, I think it is interesting when you, you know, one of the things we are, all three of us, interested in is kind of the communication of media and the communication of kind of political messages and that kind of thing. And it is very much a, a new era that we are, well, we've jumped into with social media and that kind of thing. You know, even before that, you had the 24-hour news cycles on 24-hour uh, news TV stations and that kind of stuff. It, it, I think it's hard to kind of get full context on it right now because we're living through it. I think it's always easier to, you know, look back on these things and try and get a better handle on it. You know, e even things that aren't a, a complete comparison, you know, you have things like the King's Speech, for instance, which was a film about the, an interesting period in time where a, a king who just happened to have a stutter was basically asked to give live addresses. And it was a, a before that, they didn't have the technology. And then after that, the technology changed that they could actually, you know, pre-record these things. But for a small period in time, you know, you had a king who had to give a live speech every, you know, few weeks or few months, whenever it was needed. And he had a speech impediment and, you know, it was, it was terrible for him and he was supposed to be speaking out to millions around the world. And in, in a way, we've, we've kind of morph that into rather than you know a king needing to give a speech every three months to you know the citizens of the world it's the president needs to be front and center almost all the time and it might just be because social media is a bit new and we're trapped in the the trump era in which he's in the news so much you know we are i think one of the things that people more centrally rather than left on the political spectrum are kind of look forward to more than anything else is just having a president like Biden who probably just won't be in the news as much, you know, he's not going to tweet 25 things or watch Fox news and get excited and tweet something, you know? And I think it, it's interesting that you, you talk about the political, political communication in the book when we're, we're going through that so much now with Trump. I, it's, it's hard to say this book was explicitly inspired by, by Trump. Cause I'm sure that the kind of, it was in the workings before that, but Trump is such a omnipresence right now. It's we are very much still in this or the eye of the storm is in that regards. Yeah, it's it's almost like the medium 
is is the message in some ways you know with with the social media trump is really commanding this bully pulpit and he's also been able to sort of take social media and and use the fact that you know you can have mobs and you can have sort of these long um sort of parades of of what he's doing where he is even at you know a.m in the morning he's he's able to sort of put out tweets and things like that so there's a sense that he's always around he's always part of your you know uh, circle of interest or circle of, uh, of concern but then you go back to someone like calvin coolidge who he was known for being quite reserved known for being quite boring and actually he he was quite scared that he couldn't get him his personality or himself out into the into the public so he tried to um look for a consultant pr company to help him do that to to get some celebrities so that he could you know do a sort of photo shoot with them and that was sort of the kind of first time that thing really happened but with the medium of the newspaper it was only like one brief thing that he had to do in order to change people's minds or public opinion about him and it and it wasn't this very intimate thing that we have today but i i do feel that um coolidge sort of lived under the 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 glare of a president like theodore roosevelt who had tried again to really use the medium of the, of the newspaper to sculpt public opinion and so that people like that people like coolidge had to live in a different world from the world that people like um, mckinley occupied so i guess again with uh, with trump even though we feel that biden is going to be reserved you know a lot of the centrists are saying well we want a president that you know is missing generally you know like generally <laughs> is missing but after the experience of Trump and and the way he's used the the, the medium, he Biden might actually feel forced to uh, engage in 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 some of this to, to make sure that people do know that he's around and do know that he's he's doing things. It's it's interesting to think about how the 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 newspapers and uh, people on social media are going to adapt to a president who's 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 more reserved. Definitely. Right. Um, yeah, no, everything that you just said. I think this is kind of coming from both of those responses. I think that this this moment and thinking back on Trump in, say, like 20 years from now will probably be a moment in presidential communication very similar to the JFK-Nixon debates and how the kind of visual image of them debating on stage swayed a lot of different voters. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of changed what we demanded of presidents from that point forward, that they looked the part and they could present the part on um, a massive international scale like television. Mm-hmm. And social media is probably the next kind of frontier with that um, in terms of presidential communications, that this this will be easier to look back on um, being removed from it. But but that is probably where we are at the moment. It's interesting you mentioned the TV debates there. I think that's a really good point. Normally, someone who is, you know, either the sitting president or, you know, the sitting prime minister, they normally have more to lose in a debate. And it's the challenger who mm-hmm. basically is more up for the debate because there's a chance to win over new voters. They've, you know, time to kind of get get, get out there and shine and win over people. 
and you know we saw that a lot uh, in the kind of recent years in in Great Britain actually where we we introduced the television debates there and there was a lot of kind of battle between David Cameron and whoever he was challenging to try and get as fewer debates from the conservative side as possible because it, it you know it it's very easy to go on air and just talk about how bad the government is and how bad someone else is doing at that their current job and you can make promises it's, that's a much easier job than it is to you know defend your record and do all that kind of stuff in a in an odd way i think it might actually be the reverse this time around because i think with the general shit show off america right now and the sort of general terrible job that trump is doing it certainly feels and the polls are reflecting this that people are shifting towards biden and that the momentum is with him and the one thing which is kind of the it'll either people won't vote for him or people will actively switch to vote for trump you know centrist people is if they think Biden isn't kind of mentally there or isn't able to kind of, he doesn't have the stamina for four years, etc. Right. And I think it's entirely possible that Trump will go, you know, full guns blaring, just blasting his way in these debates and really trying to overpower Biden. And we don't know how well Biden's going to do standing up for, you know, three debates, if that's, you know, what we're going to have. And I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up about the debates, because I really do feel like this is so different to than it was, you know, was before. And I think this will be Biden's biggest test, I think, by far out of anything that's gone on the election so far up to now, because I think he's had a fairly easy ride um, from the from the left in comparison to what Trump will do to him, you know, if, if the debates go ahead. So I'm. I'm both looking forward to it and a little bit terrified that potentially Biden will get exposed, but yeah. um, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, like Trump is a is a monster and a showman. There's a great amount of theatrics that he mm-hmm. does, especially in the in the debates with Hillary Clinton, because he tried to make her small. He tried to sort of invade her space, and mm-hmm. you know they had, they had talked about it and they had they had planned it previously. And and against someone like Biden, who I mean, he's he's making gaffes all the time, even mm-hmm. gaffes that are unprompted in comfortable situations. He, he just doesn't seem to be able to get out um, clear and concise sentences on the campaign trail. And that was a big risk before COVID. But now he seems to be running entirely as an incumbent, as, as you said, Simon. Mm-hmm. So... One the the only chance that Trump has is in the debates, and and I'm I'm actually a little bit sort of scared for for Biden because I don't know what Trump is going to do because he, he, like he might come out and do something crazy, something within the, the the rules, but something that completely discombobulates Biden, who is is struggling to clutch his marbles anyway, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's. I mean, it, it is going to be like real dirty cut and thrust stuff that, uh, and it's going to be pretty spectacular. I'm looking forward to two old men trying to both show that they're, you know, with it. That'll be really I'm exciting. Te- <laughs> it's really exciting television for, for three hours or whatever it is. That's, uh, like that's what we're looking He doesn't at. seem that old. He doesn't seem that old, Trump. <laughs> Just doesn't seem that old. I, I don't know. I don't know how how many young people I know that brag about 
being able to label an elephant, you know? <laughs> I just like the fact that <laughs> well, yes, had Chris, to take wait, these the Chris Wallace thing. Yes, the Chris yeah, Wallace yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also everywhere. He's talked about that thing everywhere. And it's like, yeah. my guy. Mary Trump, actually, in an interview with Stephen Colbert the other day, she was like, bragging about passing a cognitive test yeah. means you failed a cognitive test. <laughs> like, <that laughs> but the thing about it is that he, he's, he's, it's against Biden, isn't it? Like, Can Biden pass his cognitive test? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, the, that's what they're trying to communicate. Well, yeah, it's not, it's not running against Buttigieg, you know. Or, <laughs> um, get Harris to do it for him. <laughs> Smart kid, take the test. Exactly. That yeah. also features in too much, never enough. We'll get there, but uh, I, I do think, I think the I have two thoughts. Um, I've had too much wine already. I have two. <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> the first is that the VP pick is is still a very important kind of thing that hasn't happened yet. And I wonder if the VP debates would actually be something people would watch. Because, I mean, how many how many people actually have watched the full VP debates in recent yeah. years? Like, There's well, some great clips of Biden eviscerating yes. Paul Ryan. Which is, like, odd, because Ryan's supposed oh, to be this, this, you know, wunderkind um, <laughs> policy wonk, isn't he? And then Biden just... He just manhandles it. And he's slick. You know, it's, yeah. 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 I wonder if that would change anything, though. Um, But then the other thing is that Trump up and canceled the Republican National Convention today. So I wonder if they might cancel the debates. They could, yeah. I mean... Or at least put them on a different platform. I don't know if if Trump will let them do that. Uh, let, what would be great is if the debates are done through phone-in. Yeah, so that would be amazing. That's that that's the per, perf, that's the perfect negotiation um, position for the Biden campaign if they can get it. Well, you know, WWE is still going on like with no audience, so they could just like I mean, Trump's got a history there. They could sort of grab microphones in the ring and just sort of shout at each other for an hour and a half. <laughs> that's you a know? great point. And I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that in WWE didn't have like like a decade or so ago. Didn't Mr. McMahon and Donald Trump have a thing where it was like they each got like a, a proxy person to wrestle for them, and then whoever lost that billionaire got their head shaved? And of course, how is that not like the archetypal like rich people making the poor like fight for I them? Know. <laughs> like dance like monkeys? Like <laughs> <laughs> they're very well, rich poor people. They're like gladiators. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I, 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 I can only hope that it, it does turn into WWE because there are, I, I don't know, I, I'd, be, I'd be scared that a phone-in would be even worse. I'm, I'm, well, in some ways it'd be worse. I suppose in other ways it might be better because, you know, they might be able to sit down and stuff and Biden might be able to <laughs> not be sweating under the lights and turn into poor old Nixon. Um, can you just imagine how technically awful that would be, though? Like, there are always... Well, technological problems that happen at the debates mm-hmm. they, like one of them would hang up at a certain point like it would just be horrible <laughs> <laughs> that yeah okay so the okay. other point next, next point yep <laughs> yeah. um, 
So the second thing is an answer to your previous question, Simon. Mm -hmm. um, you asked, would President John Duncan be a good president during the COVID epidemic? Yeah, so this is from the previous episode when we were discussing it. And uh, I think that uh, gave you some pause for thought. And uh, you've, you've had some thoughts since. I, I have had some thoughts. Um, I think the answer is yes, absolutely. I, I didn't I didn't pause when I had to think about it this time. Um, so not not only because it's like a virus is the whole theme of the book, but or the whole threat of the book, but like throughout the whole crisis, the president was deferring to experts, which is fun. They're mm -hmm. cyber terrorism experts, but they're still experts. And he was delegating roles and juggling multiple concerns and crises on the side of the main one. Um, and you're in his head, so you kind of get a sense for how many balls the president has in the air at any given time. Um, and he handles all of them so well. And he's mm -hmm. in contact with major, major political leaders from all over the world, trying to figure out who funded like such a massive project for the war criminal, Sindorik, um, and also trying to gather the best cyber terrorist uh, or anti-cyber terrorist, terrorist experts in the world. Um, which he does. And ultimately they figure it out and fix it. Um, and he was tough, but he was compassionate, compassionate. Um, and he never allowed anyone to die solely for the sake of a more convenient or easier plan. Mm -hmm. um, President Duncan led with his heart and his head together weighing up all of his options and using well-formulated psychological tactics of teasing out who the traitor was in his midst. And he was just an exemplary figure. Um, and what's more is he took responsibility for all of the problems that arose while raising up and what? praising. I know. He praised the people who helped and fixed the crisis. And he did not, he didn't take credit for fixing it. Um, and I just, I think that I would be much more comfortable having President Duncan around during a pandemic than whatever is in the Oval Office at the moment. Or what's about to come. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So, so I was going to ask, Yvonne, I think last time we did, we did ask you this, but just, just again to reiterate, did hmm. you kind of picture anyone in particular in your head? I know, I know when we were talking about this before. The, the the news that Amazon I think are doing the the pilot of this uh, of of the the show, and I think they've cast uh, David Oyelowo to be um the, the president in this. Can you can you picture that, or did you picture someone else? I can definitely picture him in that role. Um, and I was thinking about it as I read the the rest of the book, and I definitely think that that's a good cast mm -hmm. uh, casting choice. But, uh, I just from the description that is of the president in the book, I do see him still as Michael Keaton, specifically uh -huh. from the other guys. I don't Interesting. know. I, it just, that's, that's who he is. <laughs> He's kind of sassy and funny, but also like a very genuine kind of character. Yeah. I could also a little bit see him as um, the heartthrob Mitt Romney. I mean, surely... <laughs> Surely that first part was redundant, Don. Uh, that was, <laughs> it was. Um, I just thought for emphasis. So yes. Just, yes. <laughs> do, do you do you think there's an element of of 
Clinton sort of writing a, a sort of fantasized version of himself in this book? I do think a little bit, yeah. Um, I kind of get the sense that it's more a fantasized version of what he wishes he could have done in office, mm-hmm. but with the kind of character of how he sees his wife and how she might have been as a president. Mm-hmm. Um, he does dedicate it to her and say that she had to deal with all of these problems uh, when she was in the government. Yep. And I think in in the the final chapter that's fairly long that, that I'm going to put online, um, I think that really teases out a lot of the things that Clinton wishes he had addressed uh, or weren't issues when he was president, but in retrospect, we could have prepared for better. Um, there's a lot about social media and how we treat one another and just like the warning signs of the fall of the American dream and the kind of decline of American character, Mm -hmm. uh, things that we could have probably helped in, in a context for like since 2000. Um, I do get the sense that it's, it's his kind of, if I were president now, this would be my farewell as well speech. Like, yep. That's interesting. Sorry, get the sense from the sort of the way you talked about how the president would handle the COVID crisis that there is a sort of sense of a, a deference uh, towards expertise, mm-hmm. which has always been a sort of central theme of um, American liberalism. I think probably since um, the end of the Civil War, there's always been a focus on. You know, the, the, the smart people, the, the, the people who go to universities or the people who are experts in different fields should run the government and they should be able to have some paternalistic control over what people do and how, and how they approach different problems and things like that. And I do think it's a sort of almost like a, the, the, the ideal character there is is almost like a, a some sort of busybody that that Hillary Clinton is is quite emblematic of and mm-hmm. I and I think that the chain of that kind of um that kind of deference towards expertise is, is something that's it's really um it's 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 quite endemic to American um li- liberalism uh, yes yeah and and but then there's also and even even with Barack Obama, you know, what, around the Zuckerbergs and around the Elon Musks, there was always this this feeling like you know they understand their particular area and they're successful in their particular area, so we should respect them in their their particular area. And mm-hmm. so the, the there's a the amount of leeway given to them is a lot lot more than would be given under say a socialist government or if you know Bernie Sanders was president i think that's it's it's sort of sort of why uh, obama can spend his days hanging around richard branson and things like that because there is a it's almost like a, a cross-class respect that they have based on um their establishment of their own success in in their own areas and and i do think that, that the the president is seen as someone who delegates responsibility and delegates responsibility well to people who know yeah. And I think that it's 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 
the reason why Fauci's been uh, so lauded by liberals and um, and he sort of rubs um, conservatives the wrong way because liberals are the eggheads. They assume that they're they're smarter, and you know sometimes people on the right think that they are smarter and have thought that they were smarter. And I think that's you know, it's just the part part of the the whole package of American liberalism. So yeah, that that seems to shine through. That, that's a good point, Toby. And I think I think it was Rand Paul the other week was saying like, why are we listening to like these experts? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you kind of answered your own question there, Rand, but, you know, c- continue. Go off, King. You know, it's like, <laughs> what, 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 what are you, do- I mean, yeah, sorry, I, I almost went off on a libertarian rant there. Um, no, no, it, it's the same with, like, Rush Limbaugh and, and people like that. They're always like, yamming about how the experts and yes. the, the social engineers are controlling society, and we, we shouldn't be deferring to them. They don't know, they don't know how to run society you know it's um yeah i mean it's it's a core pillar of american conservatism because of the way liberals have framed their politics as as being about you know knowledge and you know expertise just to clarify toby are you coming out against rush on bar this i mean against you against rush against, you... oh, okay, against rush well yeah. i don't know, like um, it's mixed, you know, because Rush, because <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that Rush did go on the Breakfast Club and did say that the thing that happened to George Floyd was bad. So I don't know. I don't know why I stand on Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of experts, shall we switch gears or do you guys want to oh. talk about anything else with the president is missing? On, you could be a, a radio host with those transitional skills. Segway. It's segway. <laughs> Get the segway <laughs> alarm going off, guys. Yeah. Okay, Vaughn, take us into this exciting new chapter. Okay, this was a ride. Okay, there's. Um, I will preface this by saying that there's a much longer review uh, um, that will be on the website and a video. Or, yeah, a video reading the final passage uh, or the final chapter of the book which is excellent. The whole book is excellent. I enjoyed this too much. Um, okay, so it it is called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. And it is written by Dr. Mary L. Trump, as you said, um, who's a clinical psychologist and the niece of Donald Trump. So I think the first thing to say is that her book is not solely about Donald. Um, It does explain a lot of his assumed pathologies, but she makes no attempt to diagnose in any formal way the president of anything. Um, Instead, she writes that boiling him down to any single pathology would be inaccurate, as there are multiple things going (laughs) on, and without proper testing, no one can say for sure what is going on in his mind. So saying that he's a narcissist kind of lets him off the hook. It's like Mr. Burns in that Simpsons episode where he's like, he's dying of loads of things. (laughs) He's got too many things, it's all keeping him alive, yeah. Yeah. That's that's what it is. The hate is just flowing through him in so many different ways. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, so like with that said, um, she continues to to describe the family dynamic that led to Donald Trump being who he is. Um, Now, the majority of the book focuses on Fred Trump, Donald's father, 
and mm-hmm. Freddie Trump, his older brother, Mary Trump's father and heir apparent to the Trump management empire, which was Fred Trump Sr.'s baby, essentially. And funnily enough, the only baby he cared about. Um, that's not funny. But anyway, um, the the kind of the discussions around friend Fred Sr. explicitly state his sociopathy um, and his inability to connect with any human on any emotional level and his failures as both a husband and a father. Um, Fred's character boils down to the understanding that to him, the only value of a person was monetary and the idea that in the Trump family, money was the currency of love. So Fred rela- Fred's relationship with his eldest son was the only one that mattered to him for the entirety of the five Trump siblings' childhoods. Um, Fred berated him and publicly humiliated Freddie whenever he did something wrong, never praising him for anything he did right. Uh, the, the lessons imparted on Freddie in this way kind of broke his spirit, and it instilled in him a, a self-value perpetually in the negative. And it ultimately drove him to a short life of alcoholism, self-sabotage, and self-loathing. Uh. Freddie Trump died at the age of 42, alone in a hospital that could have saved his life in the weeks prior, during which he lies sick in a bed in his parents' home, forgotten and neglected. Um, during that time, Donald and Elizabeth, one of his sisters, knew that Freddie was in the hospital and went to the movies. As Together. He Yes. Dude. Yeah. Um, So Donald witnessed the treatment of Freddie uh, throughout their childhoods and learned only that the way to get ahead in the family was to not be Freddie. While Fred's attentions were laser focused on his eldest son, his second youngest was acting out, being, quote, the tough guy and the killer as... uh, Mary uh, quotes of her whole family that that Fred really wanted a killer son. Uh, He was pushing the limits of unruliness. He was hardening his emotions to not seem weak, vying for attention in any way opposite to whatever Freddie did. So by the time Donald was an adult, Fred started to take notice of him and understood that the best way to punish Freddie was to promote Donald. Most of what we have of Donald Trump now is specifically in spite of his brother, as played by his father. So Donald's entire relationship with himself, with his father, and with his brother revolved around asserting himself as the better option, the best option, Um, building this kind of grandiose image that hopefully his father would buy, and showing the world that no one mattered to him more than himself, despite the fact that nothing will ever mean more to Donald Trump than the approval of his long dead father. So Dr. Trump makes it abundantly clear that the character we see in the Oval Office now is one of an abused child. Donald received and witnessed years of trauma and zero corrective behaviors. As a young adult, all of these character traits, the story mattering more than the truth, the fundamental need to assert himself as the best, the ever-evolving grandiosity with which he presents himself, all of these were reinforced by never being held accountable. And his father continued to promote him even when bankruptcy after bankruptcy proved his ineptitude. The banks continued to fund his projects, 
even when the ventures were mathematically absurd. The media continued to print stories about his scandalous life, even when the acts they were publishing were morally barren. And the American people continued to elect him, even when he proved to be devoid of American values. Um, I'm going to read the epilogue, which is fairly short, if you guys want me to. Um, sure. it's, it's about why Dr. Trump felt the need to write this book in this moment during COVID-19, um, which is much better explained in the, the longer final chapter ahead of the epilogue. That'll be on the site. But if you guys are cool with that, then I will read that out. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So the epilogue, epilogue is called The Tenth Circle. So on November 9th, 2016, my despair was triggered in part by the certainty that Donald's cruelty and incompetence would get people killed. My best guess at the time was that that would occur through a disaster of his own making, such as an avoidable war he either provoked or stumbled into. I couldn't have anticipated how many people would willingly enable his worst instincts, which have resulted in government-sanctioned kidnapping of children, detaining of refugees at the border, and betrayal of our allies, among other atrocities. And I couldn't have foreseen that a global pandemic would present itself, allowing him to display his grotesque indifference to the lives of other people. Donald's initial response to COVID-19 underscores his need to minimize negativity at all costs. Fear, the equivalent of weakness in our family, is, an unacceptable, is as unacceptable to him now as it was when he was three years old. When Donald is in the most trouble, superlatives are no longer enough. Both the situation and his reactions to it must be unique, even if absurd or nonsensical. On his watch, no hurricane has ever been as wet as Hurricane Maria. Quote, nobody could have predicted a pandemic that his own Department of Health and Human Services was running simulations for just a few months before COVID-19 struck in Washington state. Why does he do this? Fear. Donald didn't drag his feet in December 2019, in January, in February, in March, because of his narcissism. He did it because of his fear of appearing weak or failing to project the message that everything was, quote, great, quote, beautiful, and quote, perfect. The irony is that his failure to face the truth has inevitably led to a massive failure anyway. In this case, the lives of potentially hundreds of thousands of people will be lost, and the economy of the richest country in history may well be destroyed. Donald will acknowledge none of this, moving the goalposts to hide the evidence and convincing himself in the process that he's done a better job than anybody else could have if only a few hundred thousand die instead of two million. Quote, get even with people who have screwed you, Donald has said. But often the person he's getting revenge on is somebody he screwed over first, such as the contractors he's refused to pay or the niece and nephew he refused to protect. Even when he manages to hit his target, his aim is so bad that he causes collateral damage. Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York and currently the de facto leader of the country's COVID-19 response, has committed not only the sin of insuff insufficiently kissing Donald's ass, but the ultimate sin of showing Donald up by being better and more competent, a real leader who is respected and effective and admired. Donald can't fight back by shutting Cuomo up, 
or refuse, re, sorry, or reversing his decisions. Having abdicated his authority to lead a nationwide response, he no longer has the ability to counter decisions made at the state level. Donald can insult Cuomo and complain about him, but every day the governor's real leader leadership further reveals Donald as a petty, pathetic little man, ignorant, incapable, out of his depth, and lost in his own delus delusional spin. What Donald can do in order to offset the powerlessness and rage he feels is punish the rest of us. He'll withhold ventilators or steal supplies from states that have not groveled sufficiently. If New York continues not to have enough equipment, Cuomo will look bad. The rest of us be damned. Thankfully, Donald doesn't have many supporters in New York City, but even some of those will die because of his craven need for revenge. What Donald thinks is justified retaliation is, in this context, mass murder. It would have been easy for Donald to be a hero. People who have hated and criticized him would have forgotten or overlooked his endless stream of appalling actions if he'd simply had somebody take the pandemic preparedness manual down from the shelf where it was put after the Obama administration gave it to him. If he'd alerted the appropriate agencies and state governments at the first evidence the virus was highly contagious, had extremely high mor mortality rates, and was not being contained. If he'd invoked the Defense Production Act of 1950, to begin production of PPE, ventilators, and other necessary equipment to prepare the country to deal with the worst case scenario. If he'd allowed medical and scientific experts to give daily press conferences during which facts were presented clearly and honestly. If he'd ensured that there was a systemic or systematic top-down approach and coordination among all of the necessary agencies. Most of those tasks would have required almost no effort on his part. All he would have had to do was make a couple of phone calls, give a speech or two, then delegate everything else. He might have been accused of being too cautious, but most of us would have been safe and many more of us would have survived. Instead, states are forced to buy vital supplies from private contractors. The federal government commandeers those supplies and then FEMA distributes them back to private contractors who then resell them. While thousands of Americans die alone, Donald touts stock market gains. As my father lay dying alone, Donald went to the movies. If he can in any way profit from your death, he'll facilitate it, and then he'll ignore the fact that you died. Why did it take so long for Donald to act? Why didn't he take the novel coronavirus seriously? In part because, like my grandfather, he has no imagination. The pandemic didn't immediately have to do with him, and managing the crisis in every moment doesn't help him promote his preferred narrative that no one has ever done a better job than he has. As the pandemic moved into its third, then fourth month, and the death toll continued to rise into the tens of thousands, the press started to comment on Donald's lack of empathy for those who have died and the families they leave behind. The simple fact is that Donald is fundamentally incapable of acknowledging the suffering of others. Telling the stories of those we've lost would bore him. Acknowledging the victims of COVID-19 would be to associate himself with their weakness, a trait his father taught him to despise. Donald can no more advocate for the sick and dying than he could put himself between his father and Freddie. 
Perhaps most crucially for Donald, there is no value in empathy, no tangible upside to caring for other people. David Korn wrote, quote, everything is transactional for this poor, broken human being, everything, end quote. It is an epic tragedy of parental failure that my uncle does not understand that he or anybody else has intrinsic worth. In Donald's mind, even acknowledging an inev inevitable threat would indicate weakness. Taking responsibility would open him up to blame. Being a hero, being good, is impossible for him. The same could be said of his handling of the worst civil unrest since the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. This is another crisis in which it would have been so easy for Donald to triumph, but his ignorance overwhelms his ability to turn to his advantage the third national cat catastrophe to occur on his watch. An effective response would have entailed a call for unity, but Donald requires division. It is the only way he knows how to survive. My grandfather ensured that, ensured that decades ago when he turned his children against each other. I can only imagine the envy with which Donald watched Derek Chauvin's casual cruelty and monstrous indifference as he murdered George Floyd. Hands in his pockets, his insouciant gaze aimed at the camera. I can only imagine that Donald wishes it had been his knee on Floyd's neck. Instead, Donald withdraws to his comfort zones, Twitter, Fox News, casting blame from afar, protected by a figurative or literal bunker. He rants about the weakness of others, even as he demonstrates his own. But he can never escape the fact that he is, and always will be, a terrified little boy. Donald's mon monstrosity is the manifestation of the very weakness within him that he's been running from his entire life. For him, there has never been any option but to be positive, to project strength, no matter how illusory, because doing anything else carries a death sentence. My father's short life is evidence of that. The country is now suffering from the same toxic positivity that my grandfather deployed specifically to drown out his ailing wife, torment his dying son, and damage past healing the psyche of his favorite child, Donald J. Trump. Quote, everything's great, right, toots? End quote. <laughs> so, Vaughn, has your... Have you d developed different thoughts or different opinions on Trump? Or I mean, I'm guessing you didn't think he was a great guy before this book came out, but has, has things <laughs> developed uh, with regards to your uh, your opinion or your how you think about Trump as a result of this book? Um, I think that's a good and fair question. Um, on one level, I wasn't surprised by anything I read in the book. I was actually surprised that it that I didn't read, that's gonna sound terrible. I was surprised that there was so much mental and emotional abuse in his childhood, but no physical abuse mm. um, that she notes or knows of necessarily. Um, I think she does an excellent job of conveying that in no way is this book an excuse. Mm -hmm. um, it, is, it is solely an explanation of, of where this man came from 
and what what kind of trauma he experienced in his past from an insider kind of perspective in the family and also as a clinical psychologist. Um, I am a firm believer that there is always an explanation for behaviors and especially with kind of mental health issues uh, in a way, but it's never an excuse for those behaviors. You're still part of the world and you still have to kind of conduct yourself in, mm -hmm. in a manner if you're an adult in the world, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think she does an excellent job of kind of conveying that we can still hold him to a standard. We just have to understand what is going on with him. Um, and she did say in, in an interview about this that um, she thinks he's too far gone at the moment for any kind of actions that we as people could take to correct this path or kind of feed into it enough so that we get a kind of positive reaction. There, there's nothing that we can really do uh, right. in a way. And that doesn't, that doesn't really surprise me. Like I said, um, I think I have a better understanding and a more kind of compassionate understanding of Donald Trump, but it almost makes it It doesn't change how I feel. Mm -hmm. um, and it evidently doesn't change how she feels. Her biggest concern in the book, actually, is not necessarily what happened to Donald Trump to make him this way, but rather why the American people allowed his kind of fantasy needs of, of buying his grandiose image and funding his failing business ventures. There's there's a full chapter in the book about his damn casinos in Atlantic City and how he couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that if you have three casinos in one city, they will rival each other. They will steal <laughs> business from each other. He could not understand that. And she's like, I don't understand why the banks gave him money for these three fucking casinos. Like, <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. So her her biggest concern in the book is is just challenging kind of Americans to like wake the fuck up and hold him <laughs> accountable for once in his goddamn life. And she's like when she's writing about impeachment, she's just like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> like, you know, here, I, I think she she oversteps her remit in many ways for me. Because I mean this is a great uh, psychological analysis of, of Donald Trump, but it's not taking into account the broader socio-cultural um, context that 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 could allow someone like this to become president. Like she, the, I think the something I really latched upon was your uh, when you talked about the sort of the the, the cult of uh, positivity. You mm -hmm. know that he had to feel in in his um, formative experience with his father, he had to evoke or express positivity, never to show weakness. And 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 but but I I think the cult. And you said that, you know, it was against American values. I think the cult of the businessman in, in American life is an irrational one. It requires you to 
put away your you know your rational functioning or uh, any kind of um deep real analysis and to try to try to pretend like anything is possible like you can do anything like um con- there are no consequences and i and i do think that that isn't like that isn't sort of singular to donald trump i think that um americans in the 19th century they they and in um david reisman talked about this they 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 were um they were inner directed you know they 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 thought about the problems and they they wanted to establish themselves and to take over places westward expansion create their own, their own homesteads and they were you know brilliantly successful at it really apart from you know all the things that they did to um minorities and and, and other um sort of vulnerable people in in those environments but once you start getting into um uh, modern cities and the, the corporate complex that kind of thing disappears and what what's what replaces it is the salesman is is the is the huckster it's is the guy who can sell you dreams the, the guy who, who who's who's larger than life his personality is just he evokes and he goes beyond this sort of um, this steady and quiet, you know, sort of Gary Cooper t- um, type figure who's just quiet and, and he, in his he does things and he, he acts. But the, the the businessman is someone who is able to sell you things. Like think about like Walt Disney, Donald Trump. It's it's much more about a a cult of positivity, and I think that that kind of personality is built in the in his um formative experience with his father but it isn't a personality that that is the that he just has i think it's 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 m- yeah. much more felt wider into the culture and that is why he's he's allowed to become the sort of the the king of uh, of america basically because i i yeah like and 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 the way and as, and I also think the way she talked about his um his older brother and his circumstances and how he was beaten down and eventually you know he, he basically disintegrated as a person. I you know it it is quite a it's quite a dark picture that's uh, that's um drawn out here and I'm not necessarily sure that it it lasts once um historians go in and and sort of look because obviously it, it is a it is a sad story but it, it is also a sort of like trump leaps out as a figure who 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 really needs validation who's scared of um he's scared of negativity he's he's scared of looking weak but it isn't i mean for, for me it it, it 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 the psychologist in her is able to say that these things they they don't matter because there's a cause behind them, but I, I think they do matter because this isn't this isn't a a novel experience of American life that that, that Trump has had. He he's he's maybe the furthest edge of it, but it, it, it I don't I don't find it an entirely novel circumstance that 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 he he came from or even the psychological profile that he has. I think it's it's more in line with 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 American values really. Than the, the 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 stuff in um, the president is missing, not with the sort of the legacy American values, but with the American values that we've inherited from 
this new America that, that we've been living in for, I think, the past, I would say, 100 years. Right. No, I get what you mean. That's a grim kind of thought, though. Um, Have you met Toby before? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think that she touches on this uh, fairly well in the book, actually, because early on when she's kind of setting the scene of who Fred Trump is, um, she talks about how he was emotionally stunted. His dad died of the Spanish flu. Um, when he was fairly young and he had to kind of step up and be the breadwinner for the family Um, and he went into business with his mom as his partner at 14 or 15 Um, and he really hardened himself through that experience and he like quickly figured out the kind of ways to work the system and create a problem to sell a solution and all of the kind of who you can buy it politically to exploit um, federal housing administration for tax breaks. And he, he really became a kind of expert in that kind of business side of it, the darker kind of side of, of the business acumen salesman pitch um, that you're describing. And I think that mixed with his sociopathy, because it's she is confident saying, no, he is a sociopath. He has zero empathetic uh, capabilities. Um, I think that that mixed together and kind of projected onto his children is a really crucial kind of part of this. He... As she writes, he did not acknowledge his younger two two sons and hardly ever acknowledged his daughters. His only priority is the the only thing that mattered within his home was Freddie and preparing him to be the heir and teaching him how to do shady business and how to get back backdoor deals and all of this stuff. Um, And he that in itself is extremely abusive to your other children um, to only acknowledge that one of them exists. But in his kind of pressure on Freddie in that way, Freddie just didn't have the, the personality for that. He was like, as she describes it, he is her father. So of course she's going to have a kind of different view, but she described him as a compassionate man who wanted to be kind and he wanted to have friends and he was passionate about flying. He became one of the first uh, pilots in the TWA, which is like the, like the, like one of the most uh, famous and largest airlines when, uh, mm domestic flights really took off in the <laughs> took off in the 50s um, <laughs> and he he became this this very impressive pilot in a matter of months uh and kind of outshone all of the people who learned how to fly in the military um so he had this kind of passion and this drive and he loved it but his feelings of inadequacy that his father kind of projected or like planted in him just absolutely just destroyed that for him and his life crumbled after 
he became a pilot because he he was constantly being told by Donald and his dad that he's not good enough to actually be in the family and that he betrayed the family and what about family loyalty and I think coming back around that it it absolutely is kind of an American quality the salesman um, values of the 20th century but I do think that there is something unique about the kind of cruelty and trauma that Fred Trump forced on his children mm-hmm. uh, and that's not to say anything about Donald's relationship with his mother or with his siblings and Freddie Trump there's a story in there that Freddie Trump uh dropped a bowl of mashed potatoes on Donald's head when he was like seven because he was acting out so much and wouldn't listen to anyone, not even Fred, when they told him to stop. And Freddie was over it, so he he dumped mashed potatoes on his head and everyone laughed, including Fred, and they had never seen him laugh before. Um, And that story came up in 2017 when Mary was with her family at the White House and apparently Donald just went like stone faced and he was like, that's not funny. So like he still harbors mm-hmm. some of these extremely like traumatic events from when he was a child. Because in that moment, he felt weak in front of his father and his father laughed at him. And that is something that has scarred him his entire life. Like I definitely get your point that that this is kind of business acumen. It's it's something that's well established in American kind of psyche. But there, there is a special kind of torture there from Fred. It, it is kind of interesting to think, uh, as, she, as she apparently touched on in the book, that um, the story of, of Trump is kind of the, the failure of America to kind of keep him in line, to always always seeming to reward him for his, uh, his adventures and his mistakes. You know, you have, you have the banks with uh, the casinos, you have the... Television shows that came after, and the, the the media circus that came through that, and then of course you had the the run for presidency, and it does seem along along the way, no matter what he does, you know whether it's mocking disabled reporters or you know stories of sexual harassment or you know X Y or Z, America in one form or another has kept on rewarding Trump for his behavior and for his uh, his attitude towards people, and it sounds as if. Uh, Mary Trump in that in, in the book is, I don't know, exasperated, ashamed, um, gobsmacked. Yeah. I, I I don't know, but it, it does sound from your description as if it's a failure of America as much as it is, uh, you know, uh, tell all about the family history. Would that would that be a fair summation? Yeah, I think so for sure. She she definitely she says that she's not shocked by any of her uncle's behavior and nothing he has done has actually shocked her. But the only times that she has been shocked in the last four years is that we as American people just keep allowing it. And Mm -hmm. it like her recounting the night of the election and waking up, waking up the next morning, just numb. Like, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine what she felt as his niece and knowing him personally. But I remember that feeling. And I was, I had, I, I mean, I read the book in like a day, but I had to like take a pause at that point because I was like, oh God, (laughs) like, I remember exactly what it felt like to 
well, I was I was living in Ireland at the time, so I was up all night watching it until 5 a.m. when it was like starting to be projected around midnight, and then mm-hmm. at 9 a.m. when it was actually um, announced properly. Yep. That just that was one of the most surreal days of my life. Um, Absolutely, I can only imagine as an American kind of waking up to that news. I remember as a British person waking up to that news at seven or eight in the morning whenever it was I checked my, my phone and saying oh Trump has won and I remember turning to my my wife or my girlfriend as she was at the time and like she was just like shocked and upset and just like couldn't believe that Trump had actually won like it would, <laughs> I think there was just a inability to take this yeah. although you take it seriously it's like it's no, not- I think I was right there I was there I, I, I watched the results come in at night with, with all the you other were in Trump Tower weren't you Toby <laughs> And like the news exploded across my synapses, like in real time. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I really like um, what you said about this book, and I'm, I'm very interested in reading it because I think it's going to set the pace for a lot of the formative years in in a lot of history books about uh, Donald Trump. But, but I think. With with other uh, historians, they'll be able to go. Actually, what was the reason why we let him organize these um, bank loans and take away money from sort of housing projects in the seventies, and then build these ridiculous c- casinos in in the eighties? And I think it's it's about us, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, rooting it in the in the individual. Oh, although it's it's a it's addictive, it's seductive. It's I think it it really is. I think in in the broader culture, there is this respect for this um, this hyper positivity and and, and and irrationality that is the is the um, antithesis of the kind of expert led government and expert led um, society that, that 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 is evoked in the present is is missing right now, and I. And I do think that um, if the author was a historian, they'd be in a better place to to really mock that out. Yeah, I definitely think so. I, I don't think she takes any kind of liberties in, in offering kind of explanations or solutions as to why these things happened. Um, she's largely just questioning, like, what was that? Like, <laughs> all of the numbers said that these were horrible business ventures and you kept giving it to him. And at one point she does, from a kind of clinical psychological standpoint, she says that maybe Fred kept giving him money and the banks kept giving him money because they realized that he is inept, but they had the same kind of mentality that they didn't want to kind of cut their losses and look foolish for giving this fuck, giving Trump, sorry, um, for giving him millions on millions of dollars. Like, one of the projections, which all of their financial dealings are very shady, but one of the projections as uh, is that Fred gave Donald $413 million for his business ventures in the 80s. And she, she thinks that that could possibly be because he didn't want to kind of admit that he was wrong in choosing the wrong child or that he was wrong in any of his parental kind of stances. Um, 
and that the banks too they they had invested so much into him and maybe it was just too hard for them to kind of cut that loss you know because it because his life was so public and the media just sensationalized him trump kind of trump was a, a massive help in new york's public image in the 80s mm-hmm. Um, and kind of rehabilitating New York in just a public way, not even talking about the finances or or housing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the banks admitted that he was a f- a fraud and a failure, they're inherently tied to that story of him because the media had sensationalized him so much. So maybe that's a reason for it. And again, she doesn't give any conclusions or or project to be a historian that or a financial expert to talk about any of these things officially. Um, but she does give her kind of personal kind of ideas about what, what transpired and possibly why. Um, but I do agree that this, this is definitely going to be something that is used further down the line. Um, this is a source on, on a totally different note, just as a historian, this is a source that is unmatched. Like having a per mm-hmm. like a, a family member's personal tell all of the inner workings of the family, that's that's an incredible source to have for future historians studying Donald Trump. Yeah. I I'd also like just to point out that we probably, as we all should be, should be referring back to Rick Perry on this, because he said that Trump was the chosen one and chosen by God. And I, I think if you take that byline and take it throughout history, that everything that Trump achieved is some sort of divine intervention from the Lord or just by Rick Perry, I think that makes a lot more sense as to why things kept on falling his way. So I think if you read the book again, Vaughn, but just, you know, read it in that sort of the Rick Perry stance, I think I think you'd be a lot more enlightened as to what actually happened. Right. Just replace like Donald with Jesus and be like, oh, right, right. <laughs> Um, so sacrilegious i'm so sorry (laughs) (laughs) oh just have another glass of wine you'll be okay Uh, toby have you got any more thoughts either on trump or rick perry oh no 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 uh, yeah like uh like vaughn said um especially i mean as she is someone who's in the family it's a really great source and someone who's provided a psychological analysis i i can't imagine historians will be able to do that better than than she does it probably mm. will endure and yeah it's going to be it's going to be really interesting because it's like um cause the thing about Lyndon Johnson was that he was a guy who was who just wanted to be loved wherever he was he wanted to be in control and that came out of his own sort of um formative experience and i suppose many of the the leading politicians and bureaucrats of that period was a sort of kind of similar, especially because um, America allowed them to have more fiscal influence on people's lives. And then it's like, what are the leaders that we have today, especially conservative leaders? What are they like? And, and what 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 is it about um, the times that we live in and the formative experiences that they've had that that have caused these things yeah and then that's gonna be that's gonna be and she's really set the tone for for, for that for the future yeah. 
So just just before we finish up, I know this is completely different because you know one appears to be crazy and the other one is a you know psychologist. But we did have uh, Malik Obama, which was Barack Obama's half brother, who uh, did come out against Barack Obama during the presidency. Now, obviously, we have to take that with a huge pinch of salt compared to you know a tell-all book by a clinical psychologist. But do you think the right will be able to just write this off as? Oh, you know, it's just, you know, a, a bitter member of the family who didn't, you know, I don't know, get X, Y or Z from Trump or is, you know, the black sheep of the family, you know, the, the way that uh, Malik Obama is kind of seen. Is there going to be a, I suppose the question is, how influential do you think this will be on the election and how easy will it, how easy will it be for the, the right in America to just write this off as a, as a kook? I mean, it's interesting because isn't Biden winning with um, women who are over the age of forty-five now, which is really interesting. It could be. I haven't checked. So, I haven't checked so, that one detail. And, and obviously, people who are a little bit older tend to have more money, and um, the, the the Democrats are really looking for a suburban strategy to really run the the, the table today. And I, and I I do think this this kind of thing will catch on and people will read it i mean it's it's there's no reason why it wouldn't I and mean, it's very offensive to i think the principles that a lot of people hold so yeah it, it should it should do some work for um damaging trump's reputation further yeah Vaughn, um, any thoughts i i don't know if it will be very influential honestly um, is that because Trump supporters are Trump supporters and there's kind of a brick wall as far as that's concerned and then the rest of them are rest of people are probably already going to vote for Biden anyway is, is this a little bit sort of preaching to the, the choir already do you think I, I think it is I think I, I have I have multiple kind of reasons for why I think this but one of them is definitely that people who are decided to vote for Trump don't have a line that he can cross mm -hmm. like he's he's tried and tested every line and they're still there so people who are determined to vote for him are going to vote for him um swing voters i i don't know i don't know if this kind of changes anything like i said it, it this book isn't like groundbreaking or or a revelation in any way it's just kind of confirming everything that we already have seen about him mm -hmm. and giving an explanation for it um, that whole epilogue, the only thing that kind of stands out as like a, like, like a fuck that, like, <laughs> Jesus, is when she says, like, he, she thinks that he would have imagined his knee on Floyd's yeah. neck. I think that, I think that was probably the most, the thing that stood out the most in the book that I, I just didn't, I didn't see that one coming. But everything else was just kind of like, yeah, we know this. We see the news. Like, yeah, and I always think is like, it's about hatred, but it's less about hatred and more about theater. Like, he wanted to be part of the story, you know. That's that's also fair. That's a fair take. Yeah. Um, in the final chapter, she that that we'll put online. Um, she acknowledges the um, Central Park Five. And oh, right. Yeah. His his role in that. And how that was just racist. And even how 
what, 30 years later, is it? Or however long it's been since then, um, we've had like irrefutable DNA evidence clear them of charges and he still says that they were guilty. And mm -hmm. it's just racism and refusing to acknowledge he was wrong. Yeah. So like, again, I like, I don't know if it's the hate. I don't know if it, I don't, like she says, there's a lot going on with him. So it's not really fair to pinpoint <laughs> one thing. Like, um, but yeah, I don't think that it's really going to sway anyone's opinion. I think it's just going to kind of solidify the people who don't like him even more. I think the reason I say that is because, you know, you had Fire and Fury and you had like from books like Trump Apocalypse and things like that. But this kind of thing keeps that um, that court sort of tell all mm. culture on Trump in the news, mm -hmm. which which um, sort of normal news stories don't do as well. But then I guess, you know, there is the, the John Bolton stuff but like again you know like that's not that's not that hasn't always been around you know like fire and fury was a it was a huge thing when it was how right and I, and I do think it, it sort of helps the 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 media story and, and the 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 public opinion at the time especially when like some people who would vote for trump in the last cycle and would vote for republican can candidate are actually breaking away in this cycle like the, the democrats seem to be getting what they want and part of that might be might be that you know these kinds of things are getting to those people yeah i mean it's it's i suppose it, it is all speculative at this point i guess we will see in november with the election and how things do break down um i suppose my, my own thoughts are that um this is great media content. I don't personally think it goes too much beyond that. I think it's it, it's good for us to talk about. I'm not sure it's going to. I think if people were put had a choice between you know do they care about that? Do they care about the economy? Do they care about Trump's reaction to you know you know the racism and COVID and all this kind of stuff? I imagine this would probably be bottom of the list. I would imagine. Mm -hmm. I, I do think, though, something that just occurred to me is that all of the other tell-all books, because there have been so many about Trump now, all of them are from political advisors, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And they're all about the politics, whereas this one was about him as a person. And I think more Americans, myself included, would be willing to read something that's, like, quote-unquote, softer like mm -hmm. that. Because I... I'm not a political theorist or expert. I wouldn't claim to be. And I'm sure I could get through some of those books and kind of understand what they're talking about. But I don't think the the average American would be like eager and willing to read like Fire and Fury or The Room Where yeah. It Happened and kind of engage with the, the diplomatic kind of chess that's going on in those books. Um, whereas this one's much more palatable. And I think more Americans would be kind of interested in just the content of like, what is the family dynamic? Um, it's almost like a soap opera in a book. Like, I, what, what did I call it when I said it to you, Simon? Is it? Um, oh, that, that phrase that you came up with. Yes. <laughs> it um, was very I'm, I'm trying to find it now. Yes. But that, that was some excellent phrasing that you came up with. Traumatic smut traumatic smut yes that's what it is it's 
I couldn't look away. And I think that's the same kind of like train wreck as all of Trump's presidency is that we can't look away. And this book kind of captured that. Um, I think that's why a lot of people have bought it already and why it's been published in five major cities around the world. Um, It's like it's been in Toronto, New York, London, Sydney and New Delhi. It is interesting. I, I do. I totally take your point on that. And I do think it's a good one that you make about it being more accessible to the average person on the street. The fact that it is, quote unquote, softer. I do wonder, again, if it's because it's uh, someone who's more removed from the Trump family. It's not someone anyone really knows about prior to this book coming out. And it's not, you know, it's a quote unquote scientist who's you know saying this so again it's maybe easier for people to dismiss because you know why listen to the experts if it was trump's wife who came out and wrote this book oh i would be there in a minute then that would instantly be the kind of oh my god you know first lady or even even an ex-wife you know (laughs) (laughs) if it was if it was mike pence you know his other wife you know then um mother wouldn't allow that mother would not allow that no (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I, I do wonder if it was someone who was a sort of closer to the the Trump circle and b someone who was dumber um, that Americans could kind of get behind, you know, rather than someone who is, you know, as a clinical a psychologist. And some people went, oh, well, not another scientist. That's just what we need. Um, right. So I, I don't know. That's just pure speculation on my part. But I would imagine if if Melina Trump went on good morning america and suddenly went yeah so trump he's a racist you know that that would be a much bigger story obviously and i think it would it would penetrate the voting base even more so than something like an estranged member of the family who writes a detailed uh uh, tell all like 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 with this one um we should probably end up uh probably end the podcast there unless you guys got anything else to add on either of the books or just about Mitt Romney in general. Um, no, I got nothing. Toby, anything about Mitt Romney? Mm. I mean, he'll be in my dreams as he is every night. Jesus. <laughs> 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 yeah, I can't help that. Come on, Vaughn. <laughs> let, let's keep things classy and only, you know, imagine, you know, Nixon and whoever else we want in our dreams. Um, no, okay. So from um, I was going to say goodbye, but actually before before we do that, just another plug for the website. Uh, so uh, yeah, impressionsamerica dot com. Uh, we uh, ha- have some written stuff there, and Vaughn's doing you know lots of media stuff now. You know, all media points to Vaughn. Um, and yeah, check it out. And yeah, please leave you know, positive comments and uh, stuff where you can. And if anyone does want a, a date with Toby, you know, that, that that's that's possible as well. Um, <laughs> but but in Paris. I mean, one lucky person or many lucky people out there, they could, uh, <laughs> they could strike lucky. Uh, right. Okay. Um, I guess that's, that's probably where we ended then. Uh, Vaughn, Toby, um, this was really enjoyable. Um, I think we should do, more ones where we just let Vaughn talk and drink wine. I think that's a, a good recipe. Oh God. <laughs> I'm going to finish my wine right now. Okay. Well, well from Toby and from 
uh, Vaughn's remorse. Um, I, I guess we'll say goodbye. Uh, thanks again for listening. We'll have a, another episode for you in the near future. And um, yeah, try and stay safe in these crazy times. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.